good morning. morning. You ready to get into God's Word this morning? We're starting something new today, uh, a new series that will be eight weeks, but it's going to lead us to something very exciting. But before I explain all of that, let's uh, talk about our goals in your bulletin. There in the front cover, you've got listed for you the seven goals that we're working for as a church. Um, this series is going to lead us into the completion, I've been praying, of one of those goals. One of the things that we are um, switching up here is our children's programming, and I began to present that to you last Sunday, and I told you you'd get tired of hearing about it between now and September. Starting in September, that very first Sunday, September the 2nd, we're going to begin doing our children's programming a little bit different. Our children are going to join us up through this part of the service each week. They're going to be here with us as we sing, as we worship, as we give tithes and offerings. We want them to participate in some of the leadership of that. Um, if you've got uh, kids who would make great uh, ushers and tellers, uh, we want to get to know them and learn them in that way. And then every other week, so on the first and third Sundays of the month, our children will be dismissed for Children's Church, where they will go and do kind of what they're doing uh, now. Uh, but then on the uh, second and fourth Sundays of the month, uh, they're going to be here with us in our service through the entire time. Those of you who are parents, uh, you may say, oh my goodness, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, it's going to be good. And we as a family, as a church family, are going to come around our kids. Uh, if, you've got, uh, if you look around our congregation and you see a child um, that you could adopt as your own and make a part of your family, especially for a parent who may have multiple children sitting with them on Sunday, what a blessing. I'd love to have some amens from parents on this one. What a blessing it would be to have another family in the church ask one of your children to come sit with them uh, during the worship service, right? And then if they misbehave there, you just get after them back at home. But uh, what a wonderful way for us to build our family and working in that way. And I'm trusting that some good things come from that. In the book of Psalms, the psalmist writes, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, here's what I love about the Lord and about what he does. He offers us promises of blessing in Scripture. When God says, blessed are the ones who fill their quivers with children, God has a blessing in that. And if we are a church who fills our church with children, don't you think that blessing applies and God will bless us for that? So we're going to seek that and work on that together. I shared with you the statistic that every child, and I want to extend this out because the study also included youth and even those in college. So what Christy did this morning helps meet that. Every child, there's two major components about what keeps them connected to the church and do it all today. The first one is family life. A family that lives church out, not just on Sunday morning for an hour, but at home. It's involved in their church both on Sunday and at home throughout the week. The second factor is five other adults to invest in the life of that child as if that child were their own. Five. That's a lot. That means every one of us has a responsibility to get to know our children, to invest in their lives, to 
to make them a part of our families, to go to their events, their after-school events. I got to go one time to this kid named Dillard. Uh, he, he was doing a guitar class. It was absolutely terrible. But I got to go and listen to Dillard's uh, guitar presentation, and it was wonderful to get to go do that because you want to engage in their lives. And so I want to invite you to begin to prepare our hearts and minds. Last week I had you raise your right hands and repeat after me. Do you remember what we said? I had you state your name and say, I will not whip my head around if there's a noise during church when our children are with us. You're not going to do that. You are going to bless parents and children. You're going to love them, and it may be messy, and it could be noisy, but hey, I could use a little bit more noise. I need you all interacting with me on some level, so that's good. We're going to start this week a new series that I'll be taking us through. It's a gospel series looking at Jesus, and it's all called Water, Eight Weeks of Water. What a great time if it was just hot. I don't know why the cold front moved in right now, but normally in the summer it's hot, and we love to be around water. The pools are full in the summer because we uh, just need it in our lives. We're made mostly of water. If we squeeze one another, uh, really, really tight water may come out. Um, we depend on water. We have to have it to survive. We have to have it to, to live our lives. Ashley and I are going through the process of moving into a new home. As a part of that, it's on well water. And there's well water testing going on right now to find out, is the well good or does it need to be sanitized so that the water will be good for us? People need Good water. I got to spend some time in Haiti on this little island. Haiti sort of sits out in the in, in, in the ocean like this. It's this big curve, and out there in the middle of that curve, there's this little island that sits right there called Laganov. And on that island, the big thing that happened there to help that community, the number one thing that they worked to accomplish, first goal, was to bring water down out of the mountains to the coastal communities so that there would be good sources of pure water for people to drink and it radically transformed the community just by having access to good water. And there are stories in the Gospels where Jesus and water intersect. We're going to journey through a bunch of those over the next eight to ten weeks. We're going to look at stories where Jesus and water intersect and it's going to carry us through the first Sunday of October. Now, would you do me a favor? Would you grab your bulletins and grab a pen, okay? Because this isn't in the announcements. Turn to the announcements section of your bulletin, and I want you to write down this date, October 7th. Write down that date. Circle that date. Take it home and put it on your refrigerator or wherever you keep your calendar. And I want you to begin praying over October the 7th. That's a Sunday morning, the first Sunday of... Is that Sunday morning? The first Sunday of the week? Yeah, that'd be right. The first Sunday of October. It's, we're going to have, on that Sunday, the conclusion of this series. And we will be doing a baptism and a healing service here at Brown's Chapel. We're putting it out there. That's the day that we are going to see the Lord in seeing that goal of three people baptized. We want it to happen. So we're putting it on the calendar. It's going to happen that day. Would you begin praying with me over that day? that the Lord would do something good for us in that time. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that baptism part sounds exciting, but that healing part, what in the world is that about? Well, Scripture instructs us to pray for one another. And we believe that God heals. In the coming weeks, you're going to hear stories about how Jesus healed 
physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. And I believe that God still does that for us. And so in addition to that time, there's not going to be like a sermon that I want to preach or something made along like that. We are going to accomplish two things. We are going to baptize people in the name of the Lord. And we are going to pray for one another and lay hands on one another. And if you have been dealing with a physical, emotional, spiritual, relational brokenness in your life, we're going to pray on that day that God would heal. Heal our bodies, heal our minds, heal our spirits, heal our relationships. And I believe God's going to do something mighty for us. So pray that day. Pray now that day. In fact, let's do it before we begin this morning. God, we're starting off on a new uh, eight to ten weeks here as we journey towards October the 7th, and we believe that you want to do something good for us. I don't believe that you give us a goal just so that it just sits there. I think you give us something that you want to do in us and among us. And so I want to pray now that you would begin to set apart Sunday, October the 7th. God, I pray that that would be a day Whereas we gather together, that your spirit would move mightily among us. As we witness with our eyes people who are offering a public declaration of their faith and saying, this is, this is my statement that I am a follower of Christ. God, would you give us much to celebrate in that time? And Lord, as we seek you and your healing on our lives, we pray in advance that you would begin to work in our minds, in our bodies, in our spirits, and in our relationships to heal us and change us and make us into something that you want us to be. God, do something mighty for us in the coming days. It's in your name that I ask it. Amen. I want to start this week in John chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, pull them out. Uh, if they're using your pew Bibles, you have a red Bible and a blue Bible in front of you. On the red Bible, it's on page 751. In your blue Bibles, it's on page 1050. And I want to tell you something this morning. When I die, I expect that on my tombstone it will be written, Matthew T.G., he had no original thoughts. Okay? <laughs> I expect that that will be the statement of my life. Matthew T.G., he had no original thoughts. The thoughts that I'm bringing to you today are not original to me. They come from a guy named Timothy Keller, who's a pastor in the uh, Presbyterian. There's, there's, in my opinion, good Presbyterians and not so good Presbyterians, there's two different Presbyterian camps. He's on the good Presbyterian side. Um, but this guy's a great teacher. Some of you may have read um, The Prodigal God. That was a big book that he wrote. Many of you may have gone through some sort of study on that. It's the story of the prodigal son. And this is, you all are looking like weird and headlights. You don't know who this is. So that's good. I could have just not told you this. You wouldn't have even known any different. But this comes from Timothy Keller, and I think it's a good teaching on the first sign or miracle of Jesus. Now this morning, of what's up on the screen and what I'm going to ask us to read together is the uh, English Standard Version. You have in your pews NIV, and I was explaining this earlier this week, there's essentially this line of translations of Scripture. All of them, the good translations, start with original languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and they translate it into whatever the language is today. All right, the Bible wasn't written in English, it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. There's two different spectrums on translations. One is literal translations, which means you're trying to translate the Bible word for word and give a word for word equivalent. On this end of the scale, there's figurative, figurative translations, which means you're trying to translate thought for thought. So word for word is literal, thought for thought is figurative. 
The NIV pretty, pretty well sits in the middle of that scale. The English Standard Version that we're going to use this morning is over on the literal side. It's more word for word. Uh, what we use with our children, sometimes we use New International Reader's Version. Sometimes I present to you New Living Translation. All of those were translated from the original text, but they come more on the thought-for-thought thought thing because it takes a little bit more digestion of the believer to use a literal translation. But I think you're up to it this morning. Do you think you're up to it this morning? Yeah. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Ready? John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Let's read together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars up with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, he thought the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Fascinating first miracle from Jesus, but it's more than that. We're told that this is the first sign of Jesus. In the scriptures, as you look through your Gospels and you hear these things that say the sign of Jesus, what you're expected to understand as a reader is that these are the things that are to help us answer the question, is Jesus who he said he was. We all have to answer that question in our own lives. We all have to ask, is this God, the Son of God, come to live on earth, born of a virgin, buried, dead, conquered death, and rose into heaven? Or is this some historical figure who is a pretty good teacher, who had some moral things that may be helpful to us, but wasn't actually who he said he was. We have to answer that question. All of history has to answer that question. There is no denying historically, every person, every belief you may hold, history proves that Jesus lived on earth. But was he the Son of God, or is he somebody who was a good teacher, who People, after his life on earth, amplified into being something greater than he actually was. Is this real, or is it not? And so when we get to a sign, saying this is a sign uh, that Jesus uh, performed, what John is saying is this is the first bit of evidence for you to believe that what we say, what we the disciples, John was one of the disciples, that what we the disciples say is true. But when we think about this for a minute as being the first sign, 
that Jesus was who God said he was, we have to kind of scratch our heads a little bit and say, why do this as your first miracle? If you were Jesus, and you wanted people to believe, don't you think you'd put out the call, have everybody come, and do something absolutely incredible, like raising somebody from the dead as your first miracle, or walking on water as your first miracle? There is an oddness about this miracle. Reynolds Price is a novelist, a professor at Duke University, who wrote something, he said this, if you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, that is, if you were making up stories about Jesus to try to get across his power and his glory, who would invent the inaugural event of Jesus' career as a miraculous solution to a social embarrassment? Why would Jesus use all of his great divine power to help solve a catering disaster. I mean, why pick that as your first thing that you're going to do? And how is this a sign? Jesus uses all of his mighty power to wipe egg off the faces of two befuddled young newlyweds. Not walking on water, not raising people from the dead, not a miraculous healing. Why in the world is this the first thing that John wants to point us to to say, this is the first sign that this guy is who we say he is. Who would have thought that up? Again, I think this is evidence that Jesus is who he says he was, and I think this is evidence that John, a disciple of Jesus, believed it in his heart. Because if he wanted to fabricate a lie, there is no way that he would say, this is Jesus' first miracle. The Bible's full of things like that where it just doesn't make any logical sense. If we go to the end of the story when Jesus is resurrected, who are the first, who's the first set of eyes to see the resurrected Lord? Yes, a woman. Culturally, a woman's testimony was invalid. If you were a woman and you witnessed a chariot wreck, and you were called into court to say whose chariot hit whose, you wouldn't be called into court because your testimony was culturally invalid. There is no reason that if these guys were trying to fabricate a lie, it would have been a woman who saw Jesus first. I believe they are writing something accurate. And I think John is pointing us to something accurate here. You wouldn't make something like this up. So what does this sign show us about Jesus? The first thing is it shows us who he was. If you have your bulletins, that's the first fill in the blank there in your notes section. This sign shows us who Jesus was. Was. Would you look at verses 8 and 9 with me again? Uh, and he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, he thought the servants who had drawn the water knew. Let's pause there for just a minute. What is the master of the feast that Jesus brings this to? The master of the feast at a wedding was the MC. He was the person who presided over the party that was being thrown that these people were getting married. He was the hired and paid for life of the party. Do you have somebody like that in your life who would be the person that you needed to throw a party and you needed people to have a good time? This is the person you would call to come help people be entertained. I have that person in my life. His name is Heath Mulligan. Heath Mulligan is the life of the party. He's a guy who, who knows what's going on. He can keep people having good fun. It can turn into the most boring thing. Keith walks into the room, and all of a sudden, 
It's fun again because he can come up with ways just off the top of his head to help you have a good time. That's the master of ceremonies at a wedding feast. And this party that the people are at as they're celebrating the wedding of this young couple, this party is falling absolutely flat. They have run out of wine to serve. It is a catering disaster. And Jesus saves this guy's behind. It would be shame in culture for you to run out. You're supposed to be prepared and ready for this. You're supposed to know what the expectations are and help people celebrate the union of your children and this great and joyful day. And it was a disaster for everyone in a shame-based culture to run out of wine at a wedding. This is no small thing. Now, why would Jesus, as his first miracle, create a bunch of delicious wine? Well, he's saying, Jesus is saying, yes, I come to bring my self-denial. Yes, I come to bring rules and regulations. Yes, I come to bring humbling. Yes, I come to bring codes of conduct. Yes, I come to bring all of that. My followers will experience all of that. But ultimately, if I could set the stage for what I am about to do, for why I have come, it is to help you to taste and see that the Lord is good. In Isaiah chapter 25, we read this. Let's look here. Read it with me. In the last day, the Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast of the finest meats and wine, well refined. And on this mountain he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and your reproach and shame will be taken away forever. For the Lord God has spoken. Of all the things I could bring to you, Jesus says, Jesus is saying, I have come as the Lord of the feast. I have come to help you see that at the end, when it's all written and all done, I am going to throw the most incredible feast, the most incredible time. You are to enjoy this life. Why do people not come to church? One of the excuses I would have to imagine is that they say, I want to enjoy myself. And when I'm at church, there's nothing fun that goes on there. I want to enjoy myself, but what fun is there at church? Jesus is trying to crush this. Do you even know what you're missing? You don't even know what you're doing. God is good. This feast language is used all throughout Scripture. We come into the church sometimes, and you come in. I should say you come in. I don't know. I'm excited to be here. I don't know if you picked that up or not, but I'm excited. I hope you come in the doors of the church excited to be here knowing you are going to have a good time. You are going to taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're not doing that, it's misery for you as a believer. But Jesus came to help us engage all of our senses in the reality that God is good. All of our senses. He wants us to see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. 1 Peter chapter 2, now you have tasted that God is gracious. Ephesians chapter 1, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you may know his power in us. Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to have power to grasp tangibly how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ. We've got to engage everything that we are in knowing that God is good. And if you haven't tasted and seen it, then you don't know the Lord. If you haven't smelled that the Lord is good, you don't know the Lord. 
If you haven't felt it or known it or seen it or tasted it, you are missing something good. God is good. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes to put this first sign out there to say, this is who I am. I am the master of ceremonies. I am the Lord of the feast and I am good. Three. It's always three. We get four. One day we get four. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, great revivalist preacher, sinners in the hands of an angry God. You remember all that from your Christian history. He asked, "What's the difference between knowing and understanding these things?" In a very famous sermon called "The Divine and Spiritual Light," Edwards says, "There is a difference between having an opinion." that God is holy and gracious, and having a sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty and all of that that holiness and graciousness is. There's a difference between knowing, Jonathan Edwards says, there's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting that honey is sweet. You can know all day that honey is sweet, but there's a difference when you taste and see that it is good. You are invited by the master of ceremonies not just to know about the goodness of God, but Jesus came to help you engage all of you to experience the glory of it. Not just to know it up here, but to know it here, and to know it here, and here, and here, and everywhere. That God is good. It shows us who Jesus is. The second thing that this sign shows us is it shows us what Jesus came to do. Just knowing about this is the same as experiencing it. And just to kind of reiterate, get us into this point, let's say a blind person came to you and asked you the question, what is the difference between the colors red and blue? Is it equivalent to the difference between a trumpet and a tuba? How do you answer that? You can't really understand the reality of sight if you don't have sight. You can't put it into context. And what Edwards was saying, what the Bible is saying is this. This is one thing to say, oh, I know God loves me, but have you seen and have you tasted? Has it been made real in your heart? Have you actually had a life-shaping reality come upon you? If you say, oh, I know God is wise and powerful, yet you're always scared and anxious, and you're worried about this, that, or the other, you're worried about money or your children or that you're not really seeing his power and wisdom and the massive and majestic things that God can do. You can know that God is wise and powerful, but have you seen it and tasted it? And until this happens, until you taste and see, until you grasp his love for you and his power and his greatness, until you feast upon it, you haven't gotten it. In verse 4, Mary comes to Jesus when the wine goes out of the party. The party is over. And for the wine to give out, there's been a major social faux pas, and she comes to Jesus, and she knows who Jesus is. She heard the angel say, Mary will carry the Son of God. So she knows who Jesus is. She knows who she's talking to. And she comes to Jesus, and she says, the wine has run out, Jesus. You need to do something. Now, I find Jesus' reaction to be very interesting here. And you probably do, too. What's Jesus' response to Mary? Woman? My time has not yet come. Is that any way to talk to your mother? <laughs> that is no way to talk to your mother. He doesn't say mom or mother. He says, woman, woman, why do you involve me, woman? Very sharp and very harsh, it seems. And clearly, Jesus is troubled by something here. 
What is it? Woman, my time has not yet come. What is going on here? Jesus is thinking about something else while he is here at this wedding, I believe. Jesus' mind is a million miles away. This is our humanness, and Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. You know what I'm talking about, where you can be in one place, but your mind is somewhere else. It's disconnected and somewhere else. A lot of times we encounter this story and we think that Jesus is saying, you're forcing my hand here, Mom. I'm not ready to do a miracle yet. Then after a few moments, he's like, okay, I guess I'll do it. And he does it. But that's not what's happening here. He isn't saying no to her and then changing his mind. Why is he saying this? Why is Jesus behaving in this way? If you're a young person and you're single and you're getting into your late teens and early 20s and you go to a wedding, your mind is probably a million miles away. I don't care who you are. Why? Because when you're going to that wedding, you're thinking about your wedding. You're thinking about that day when it's going to be you standing up there. You may be physically present, but your mind may be a long ways off. By the way, here at this point, Jesus is around 30 years old. And it's certain that people in that culture did not wait that long to be married. Culturally, he was probably being asked constantly by that nice neighborhood lady, Jesus, why haven't you settled down and found a wife yet? Why haven't you? You know, just constantly getting on to him. Why, why are you not married yet? I'd love for you to meet my granddaughter. She's just perfect for you. And so you're young and you're single, and especially if you live in this traditional culture and you go to a wedding, what is Jesus thinking about? He is thinking about his own wedding. His mind is a million miles away at this wedding, thinking about another one. And he would be much more profoundly stirred than you and I would be at this thought. And here's why. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God tells us that he does not want to relate to us as a king relates to his subjects. That is not the relationship that God wants with us. He doesn't want to be the king to us being his subjects. God wants to relate to us in a different way. He doesn't even, like, he gives us the shepherd to the sheep or father to children, but that's, there's, like, at the end of it all, there's a different relationship that God gives us that he wants us to have. He wants us to have such a profoundly loving and close and intimate relationship with one another that he wants us to relate us to God as bride and groom. And therefore, in an astonishing number of places, like Isaiah chapter 62, Hosea chapter 2, Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah chapter 2, God calls himself the bridegroom to his people. Now, with that understanding, do you understand where Jesus is? Where Jesus' mind is while he is at this wedding in Cana? There are other places in the gospel in which people are coming to Jesus saying, hey, look, your disciples don't fast, and they don't pray, and they don't do all the various sorts of spiritual things that all the other disciples in the world do. And Jesus says, no, no, do friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Jesus calls himself that. The friends of the bridegroom don't fast on the wedding day. They feast, and I'm the bridegroom, and they're with me. They are, they are like, this is what's happening. In John chapter uh, 3, just the next chapter in your Bibles from where we're at. John the Baptizer. I don't call him John the Baptist because he wasn't 
Baptist. <laughs> Here's John the Baptizer. And John the Baptizer is like, he had had up to this point like the most intense and crazy megachurch. People were coming out of the cities, out into the wilderness, here to teach. He had hundreds of people who were following what he was teaching. But along comes Jesus, and all of a sudden, the people begin to leave John's camp and start to follow Jesus' camp. And John's disciples come to him and they say, John, our church is shrinking. Everybody's going over there where, where Jesus is. What are we going to do? And do you know what John's response was? Of course. Of course our church is shrinking. The bride is for the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. This is all for him. This he, John says, he must become greater and I must become less. Now, who is the bride? We heard it this morning in our call to worship in Revelation chapter 21. Matt read for us, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. That new Jerusalem, that is us. That is the church. And God wants to relate to us on that level. That God is with us, and God is intimately with us, close to us on a daily basis. That God is with mankind, and Jesus is thinking about a great day in the future when his people, his bride, would fall into his arms in unity and embrace. But that's not all he's thinking about. Why is this a troubling thought for Jesus? Why is this a troubling thought for Jesus? Because he's thinking about what it's going to take for him to provide the wine at his wedding. What he says, literally, is, my time has not yet come. The actual Greek word that he uses is, my hour has not yet come. The Greek word is, hora, hora. And if you turn the bookends of the Gospel of John to John chapter 17. John is with his disciples in the upper room. He's washed their feet. He's giving his final teaching to them. And he closes with a prayer. And after he prays for his disciples, he prays to God his Father. And this is what he says. I think I've got it up on the screen. Let's see here. No, I don't. I just have to trust me. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. So if we could bookend the book of John with the first sign being Jesus saying to his mother, my hour has not come yet. Now he's facing the Garden of Gethsemane. Now he's facing Golgotha and the cross and the grave. And he is going into that saying, now the hour has come. Where is Jesus' mind in this wedding? His mind is on what it's going to take for him to provide the wine for his wedding feast. Mary says, they need wine for this wedding feast. And Jesus responds saying, my hour's not here yet. Why? Because he's thinking about you and me and about what it's going to take to make that celebration happen. The present is a parable. Of course he's not talking about this wine or wedding. Mom, the only way I'm going to have wine at my wedding feast, the only way I'm going to be able to lift up this cup of festival joy and have my spouse fall into my arms at my wedding feast is I'm going to have to suffer and bleed and die. Do you think I'm crazy here? Jesus proves it in one more way. Look what he calls for. Mary's response to that is, do whatever Jesus says. <laughs> and Jesus 
commands the servants to go get some jars. Now, they're not just any jars. They're given a name in the story. What are they? What type of jars? They are ceremonial jars. They are jars that were used for washing, for cleansing. Because you would wash the outside as a symbol of trying to wash the heart. It was part of the law that God gave to the people that they would wash in a way to say, this is a symbol, an outward symbol of something that I'm wanting to do inside. These are ceremonial jars that were to be meant for that purpose, to wash and cleanse the sins of the person. And Jesus calls for those jars, the ceremonial jars, to be brought. And as he's doing this, he's probably remembering years ago when God turned water into blood, it was a curse. The story of Moses, you know that story. People died for lack of something to drink. But today, Jesus is going to turn water into blood as a blessing. It's a thing that cleanses us. And Jesus, sitting in the midst of this joy, is sipping the cup of the coming sorrow that he's going to face. Mom, the only way that my people are going to fall into my arms, the only way that I'm going to embrace them and love them, the only way that I'm going to be able to lift up this cup of festival joy is if I drink the cup of eternal justice for them. On the last day, the last supper, Jesus lifted the cup and he said, this is my blood. This wine is my blood. Let this cup pass from me. He said to his father while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the only way I'm going to have my love, the only way we're ever going to fall into one another's arms and have that absolute unity of oneness is first I must shed my blood for the cleansing of sin. Behold the glory in this moment, sipping the curse that he knows it's going to take in order for you and me to have celebration of joy. There's nothing crazy or random about this first miracle. It is a perfect picture of who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. Do you know what it means to be a believer? We've got a picture of it in verses 9 and 10. What do we see there in your scriptures in verses 9 and 10? What we see is then the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from. And he called the bridegroom. Of course, the bridegroom's family were the ones who were supposed to provide all of this and had allowed for this catering disaster to happen. But he calls the bridegroom over and he says, listen, everybody usually saves the good wine for the beginning, they just have a little bit of that, and when everybody's kind of lightly buzzed, then you bring in the less than good wine. Why would you save the best until last? Guess what? Jesus does the work, and the bridegroom gets all the credit. And in your life and mine, as believers, when Jesus has shed his blood for you and me, Jesus did all the work. Isn't that a beautiful thought? He does it all, and somehow we get credit for his work. It's nothing that we have done. So don't you dare say, oh Lord, I'd love to have this relationship with you. I've tried very hard, and I've ticked up all the things on the list, and the party's going fine, and I've worked really hard. Now would you please reward me for all my hard work? No, that's not how it goes. That's not what being a believer is. You have to say, I've absolutely blown it here. This is a disaster. 
I'm out. I've got nothing left. I'm out of joy. I'm out of, of happiness in my life. I'm out. I can't do it on my own. So give me the credit for what you have done for me. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus provided the wine. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died. And now for Jesus' sake, he loves me and he gives me credit for what he's done. And that is what it means to be a believer. And if you don't understand that, you're always going to be anxious. You're always going to be wondering whether you've lived a good enough life. No. Learn to say a saving prayer. Learn to admit, I'm out. I have nothing left. I cannot do this on my own. And admit that you need something that only he can provide for you. Ask for that credit. Ask God to transfer unto you what Jesus has done. That is what being a believer is. This is a beautiful story. I want to invite our worship team to come up. We're going to sing a song, and I want us to pray together. But I'm just kind of sensing I need to have that opportunity here to give you the space and the moment to ask the tough question. What has Jesus done for you? Are you living a, like Culturally, you live, I know it sometimes like we're persecuted as believers, I don't know about that. Culturally, we live in a Christian place. Culturally, it's most acceptable for you to be a Christian. So it's easy for us to just kind of drift along. Is it real to you? Have you tasted it? Have you seen it? Have you smelled it? Do you need it today? As we sing this song together, think about these things, and then we're going to close together, let's sing. Honor one another just for this moment, please. Have you tasted and seen that God is good? Has the master of ceremony come and brought joy to your life? Do you know it? Can you feel it? Can you sense it? Is there any question? Maybe you have been trying under your own resources and under your own strength to live a life worthy of that. But you're just knowing now at this time that you're tapped out. You can't do it. Do you need to ask for Jesus to bestow that credit of glory upon you? He doesn't do it grudgingly. He doesn't do it with a heart that and is seeking anything out of it but to love you. Maybe this is your day. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to look across the congregation, but I had asked that everybody else just keep your eyes closed for this moment. And if you'd like for me to pray with you over the coming days, I just want you to raise your head and look at me as I look at you. I want to see who you are so I can know that I can be praying for you. You're welcome to come find me after our time is done this morning. Just take that, take that bold step to say, that's me, I'm tapped out and I need that joy. I need the master of ceremony to come reign and rule in my life. Would you 
do that now, if that's you, just raise your head, look at me, as I look at you. See that? Yes. Okay. God, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who today have said, I'm tapped out. I need that in my life. I need the joy of the Lord. God, I pray that you would deliver that to us now abundantly. I thank you that you did all the work and give us all the credit. And now, Lord, credit us. Look at us. When you look at us, we are clothed in the clothes that Jesus gives us. And now, as you look at us, you see your children. What a blessing it is to be called sons and daughters of the God of the universe. Make it real to us. It's in Christ's wonderful name. The name that is above every name. The name that comes to give joy to those who are joyless. The, the name who comes to give wisdom and comfort and care to those who need it. The name that delivers a new hope and something to hold on to. That we say thank you for what you do for us. And we look forward to that day when heaven and earth collide. And God is with men. Make us a beautiful bride. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.